Right now on Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast, we're about to meet one of the key men at PM Group, Peter Farrelly. What an engineer is, it's someone who's solving problems and trying to improve things. And in our case, uh, trying to improve the lives of the people that our clients are making products for or providing services to. Hello there, my name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast, where we speak with leading members of our community of creative professionals about how engineers are delivering interesting and sustainable solutions for society. Joining us today is a chartered engineer who's skilled in AE design, project, construction and operations management and business development. In his 25 years since he first joined PM Group, he's seen massive growth, which gave him a ton of multinational experience working across the full life cycle of projects from inception and funding through to design, procurement, construction, commissioning and qualification. PM Group itself is known for its work with some of the world's leading pharma, food and medical technology companies. It was founded in Ireland in 1973 and today has three and a half thousand employees working in Ireland, the UK, Asia and the US. From PM Group, it is a pleasure to welcome to our podcast Regional Development Director Peter Farrelly. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Dusty. Thanks for having me on. No, a pleasure. Tell me, what attracted you to this crazy business of engineering? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I suppose it's hard to know where it comes from directly because I was only probably uh, one of one or two in my generation across all my cousins. Um, There was no family tradition in engineering. So, um, but several of the next generation are taking up engineering. So maybe I've inspired somebody along the way. But I suppose um, I was always interested in how things work um, and in fixing things and uh, some of my youngest memories are having tools and trying to fix things, um, which I'm quite sure was actually breaking things that were working perfectly well before I got near them. But I suppose it probably comes from my upbringing, the environment that I grew up in. I was always very focused on finding solutions to problems and sometimes very novel solutions. And I suppose that's what engineers do. So although there weren't many trained engineers in my family, I'd say there were there was a lot of engineering spirit and engineering mindset and engineering minded people that I that I grew up with. So when it came to uh, what to study, uh, there was a long list of various engineering courses and not much else. But I think whatever you do, you should have real interest and passion for it. Uh, and that was the case with me and engineering. And I've, I have to say, I've never once regretted the choice. And And I would say that even for somebody that's not really sure what to do, a base education in engineering can open open up many other doors and career choices. For example, in IT, in finance, in teaching, in management and many other areas. They call it a very portable career, don't they? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and particularly with international recognition uh, through Engineers Ireland and, and other institutions, um, you know, if you need to build a building, the fundamental, the, you know, the, the regulations and the codes will change from place to place, but the, the base skills sit, uh, stay the same no matter where you go. Listen, let's have a chat about uh, PM Group because the company does an awful lot of work with pharma, a very, very precise industry. Uh, what, what kind of challenges in general do, do pharma facilities come with? 
The specific challenges around that will are probably be the, the quality of, of what needs to be built. When you go to put something into your body, when you take a pill, you know, you buy a, a packet of anodine in the supermarket or somewhere else, you have to be very, very sure that what's going into your body is manufactured in the correct way. So I suppose from our point of view, it's about building those facilities and making sure the facilities are designed, built and commissioned and then validated um, in a way that can provide that quality and that traceability with the with the products that are ultimately manufactured in the facility. And what kind of things do you have to take into consideration when, when thinking about the building? If I just talk about the, the basics of it, the flow of materials into and through the building, uh, the flow of people. Uh, back to this point about what you're going to put in your body, contamination comes from people. So there's a big, uh, a big emphasis on making sure that the people don't bring when they're entering the facilities don't bring anything that could contaminate the products that are in there. So a lot in the early stages about how the building works together, the flows of materials, the flows of people, uh, waste in and out, uh, raw goods, finished goods, all of those sorts of things. I think then it's just the cleanliness of the space. Clean room facilities uh, are in a lot of pharma facilities um, and they take a, a particular uh, expertise and design expertise to uh, to implement. So when you think of clean rooms, you think of something that's generally maybe in a basement with no windows and fluorescent lighting and, uh, and everything is done, whereas people like to work in more airier and brighter surroundings these days. Uh, has design changed to enable that? Yeah, Absolutely. Clean rooms can be very big spaces, very big uh, facilities. But uh, some of the sorts of uh, techniques we've used is um, having uh, glass panelled walls instead of um, some other material. So you can actually see through to the daylight outside to external windows and also see the other uh, people working in the facility as well, because that can be an issue if somebody goes in and all the requirements to change um, and uh, gown up to go into some of these facilities. So you can't go in and out really quickly in some cases. So, you know, we, we've, we've done some of those sorts of things to try and help with that. If I had to work in a lab, I'd love to work in a penthouse lab so you'd have a view. Yeah, well, when you, when you look at um, what some clients are doing, uh, particularly, um, the, you know, clients where they have their global headquarters and they want to attract a lot of R&D staff, like, for example, in the UK, in the... Oxford, London, Cambridge region. Uh, there's a lot of companies located there. And for those facilities, they'll get in the most renowned, world-famous architects. The facilities will be to the absolute highest standards possible. They invest a lot of the time in not just the lab facilities, but actually the, the environment that the people will work in to inspire the people, but also to, to enable them to attract the very, very best people they can get in the market. Medicine and pharma and everything is changing constantly. Does this impact the design then of the building? Yeah, it it impacts it hugely. There are lots of different types of pharma facilities. So if I take the more traditional one where, um, you know, as I said before, you get your box of anodine in the the supermarket or some other other drug you'll be familiar with. Uh, The type of facility to produce something like that is is well known. And, you know, there there are lots of them all around the world for many, many years. Uh, And I suppose that the facility types uh, are very different. When you look at the facilities to produce the active ingredient for uh, a medicine, it will be very different to the facility that produces the actual tablet that you take or the solution that you drink or the the, um, whatever is injected into your body. They'll be very different uh, facilities. But if I take it from another another angle completely, there's a whole new suite of advanced therapy medicinal 
products, ATMPs are called, and they're medicines for humans that are based on genes, tissues or cells. And they're quite novel and quite new, some of the things that are done with that. So some classes of these ATMPs are considered to be personalized medicines. So if you if you imagine um, in a facility, traditionally, a batch of tablets could be, you'd count them in the millions of tablets. Whereas in this facility, if they've taken something out of your body and they're going to do something with the cells or genes, every person is a, is a separate batch. So the requirements and the challenges of designing a facility such as that are entirely different to uh, designing a facility to make uh, traditional pharmaceutical products. So can you give me an example of that then? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, a number of years ago, did a facility. It was a first of a kind in the world, actually. Uh, It was without precedent. Um, It was a cell and gene therapy uh, catapult facility to promote a, a number of companies you know, startup phase, probably smaller companies that needed uh, effectively what could be described as incubator space. That facility um, had to be designed not only uh, to cater for all the usual pharma requirements, but also had to be designed to cater for up to 12 different tenants at the same time, all with different requirements, all with their own issues around confidentiality, access, egress, um, all of those uh, types of challenges. And then do you have different design considerations then if you're doing something? I mean, vaccines are just so important these days. We've had uh, COVID recently. Um, it, and that's different from kind of like, you know, a tablet. It's different from something that you're doing for on a, on a person-by-person basis. What, what are, what's the difference when you're working with vaccines? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dusty. There's, there's, uh, different, there's loads of similarities, but they're quite different. Number one, um, you're, you're dealing with a liquid, and in, in many other cases, it's, it's going to be a tablet format or something like that. The biggest challenge we've had over the last while is uh, speed, and the COVID uh, pandemic um, was, a, was a driver of that, obviously. So the, the types of facilities, are lots of it is, is similar, but you're, you're trying to um, fill into um, vials or syringes that'll be used to inject into people. So, you know, the, the, the quality of the facility and the hygienic conditions need to be um, even higher than some of the more traditional facilities. You know, we've done a number of those projects. I remember during the COVID pandemic watching the, the news one night and the cameras were outside the, the Pfizer facility that was, was uh, shipping the first batch of vaccine. And that was a facility that I was involved. I was working on a project there. We were working on a project there. And, you know, it makes you very proud as an engineer that you've done good, that you've, um, you've been involved in something like that. You're helping in a very positive way. Another example, we've done a, a project for um, MSD in Belgium to expand their um, vaccine manufacturing facilities. And, and that th- threw up its own challenges because not everything we do is um, greenfield. Uh, lots of the work that we do is brownfield work. So you're going into a facility that's already in existence and you have to cut and carve and, and chop it up. And in some cases, still with live production happening in that facility. So you can't bring the, the current production down. So we need to be very, very careful. But in in that particular project, um, we had probably 450 people on site at the peak. A lot of that um, was during uh, COVID restrictions. So you can imagine the challenges of trying to build a vaccine facility with 450 people on site during COVID restrictions. But um, we, we did it anyway and we got through it and um, it was a very safe, uh, safe project. Uh, over a million hours worked on site without, without any instances. So it just shows you the scale of the challenge with um, 
designing and building some of these facilities. So thinking about that on a, on a brownfield site during COVID with 450 people working, trying to expand this facility, what's, what's, what's the one solution you came up with that you were most proud of? Um, it's, it's probably not just any one solution, but, but the sheer logistics of getting that number of people in, you know, so a lot for something like that, you're going to have a workforce. Uh, the workforce in that project, by the way, came from 25 different countries. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> trying to get people um, in and out of the facility, trying to make sure that people could connect with their families at home. Uh, people couldn't travel then when travel restrictions were were lifted so there was a multitude of things it would be hard to single out one thing that was um that was better than another one let me ask you just kind of dealing with clients and, and an overview on a project because clients often want something fast and then but they also want you to be flexible and then of course they're always looking at, at price how do you handle that it's, I suppose it's a feature and it's a real challenge in our industry at the moment. Every client wants something built quicker and cheaper and, you know, all those sorts of things and all the things that, that, that you can't square all the, the circles. A key part of our strategy, uh, we've embarked on a, a, a lean transformation program that we call uh, DELTA, which is, stands for Digitally Enabled Lean Transformation. And it's a way of um, improving and transforming our uh, business. And at its core, we're trying to apply these lean principles to remove wasteful activities and friction. And we're doing that through uh, the use of all sorts of um, digital uh, technologies. So I suppose that's, um, that's one of the ways that we're, that we're doing it. And digital technologies are changing everything. I mean, it's changed the way we work and people are working from home more and stuff like that. What's the biggest impact digital has had on your business in the last two years? You know, everything we're trying to do, we're trying to enable with digital. We're looking at, at, at all the aspects. When we lean something out, how can we get digital tools to help us, to enable us to lock in those gains that we get from that lean transformation? I mean, there's loads of examples that are the more traditional ones that you'll know about. Um, you know, all the, the drawing tools, AutoCAD, all of those things, um, the paperless office, all of those things. And I suppose um, we also have been using, just just like everyone else, you know, Teams and Zoom and all of those things helped us when we were all locked down and couldn't travel um, for a long time. But we're looking at technologies right across the business. And if I take something like augmented reality and virtual reality on some of our projects, uh, and they're really transformative uh, in terms of how we deliver our projects um, and really are at cu- cutting edge uh, compared to what we're seeing out in the marketplace. So looking at digital and how it's able to transform the way we work and people working at home and remote working and in the office and stuff like that, how has digital kind of changed your operation in the last two years? One example, we're, we're doing it on a large data center project at the moment. We're able to go into the field and we're able to look at the, um, the building as it's being built. You can see what's actually physically constructed on the ground. You can overlay that with what's coming next. You can uh, find problems in real time. You can find problems before they actually happen. Uh, so it drives huge efficiency in, in how we build those buildings because you can imagine how complex some of these buildings are, the structure alone, the services within the buildings and all of those things. So it enables us to look at those in real time. I think you know this is all linked back to a more general question about continuing professional development and the importance of it and understanding what's going on. I mean, you don't have to be an expert 
in all of the systems. I, I wouldn't say we have very few people that would be an expert in all the systems, but it's about knowing enough about it that uh, know how they operate, know how they can add value and know what they can do uh, and being able to, to talk about it. And what about the uh, continuous professional development? Uh, how do you implement that into your own career? Well, from the get-go uh, in my own career, I, I've always put a lot of focus on um, education. Um, and every time I thought I was finished with education, I went back again and again. <laughs> um, so I've said the last time that I'm done with it, but who knows what will happen What will happen in the future. So I've done quite a bit of formal education. Um and going through the process with Engineers Ireland to be a chartered engineer, to be a fellow of Engineers Ireland. Um, but that's there's also just keeping up with the day-to-day. So there's lots of stuff that happens within the industry, uh, attending industry events, um, going to conferences. Um, uh, again, Engineers Ireland run a lot of really, really interesting um Uh, CPD modules that, you know, it might be somewhat unrelated to your day job, but some very, very interesting stuff. And some of it is directly related. Some of it is highly applicable to the things we're doing every day and the stuff that I'm doing every day. So I'd say it's a mixture of all of those things. But even I'm in a very fortunate position um, that, you know, I I spend a lot of time client facing um, with our clients, um, out talking to people and you know, just talking to different clients, um, you, you learn new things, you learn different things. And again, across the sectors we work in, we work in, in different sectors. And actually, that's probably one real advantage we have, because some of the principles that we're able to ha- use and apply in one sector, we can then bring to other sectors. Uh, and it, it brings some really good innovation to those sectors. Is there one thing, just you mentioned Engineers Ireland, it, tell me the one thing that you've done with them that maybe you didn't want to, but actually had a good effect on your career? You know, the the, the process of becoming a chartered, chartered engineer is not a simple one. Um, and that's for good reason. You know, you don't have somebody that rocks up tomorrow and says, I want to be a chartered engineer. So there's quite a bit of work that has to go into, you know, making sure that you get the right experience um, that making sure that you, um, you've covered the areas that you understand uh, enough about the industry. So that's, uh, that's a process that was, you know, it was it was tough to do, but um, highly valuable once it was done. And what was the one thing though? That, uh, that, did you have something in, in your mind? Where you, oh, I don't really want to do this, but you did it, and and it worked out. Well, you know, simple things like uh, talking about yourself and and writing statements about how good you are, and and uh, you know, uh, filling in, filling in application forms to to say how wonderful you are at doing all of these things. Um, uh, certainly doesn't come easy to me. I'd, I'd, I'd prefer other people maybe to, to say it if it, was, if, it was, if it was warranted or merited rather than having to say it myself. It's always much easier to sell somebody else than to sell yourself. That's what I've, uh, I, I, I've found. But if you've picked up ways of doing that with uh, Engineers Ireland, that's all good. Listen, let's talk about uh, one of the biggest I- innovations because we were talking about innovation and digital and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that we see in our day-to-day lives now are electric cars. Do, do, do you find this an interesting engineering problem? Yeah, actually, uh, the the whole EV sector is part of our strategy within PM Group forms part of our strategy. So, I suppose it's it's interesting and challenging. It's a real strategic growth market, but it's growing at an exponential rate. And there are a few companies that can support the sector uh, that have the right experience. And when you look at the profile of the clients that are involved in the sector, 
So you have lots of absolutely new startup companies. And like I mean, absolute starting from scratch. And they're looking to be big players. You have JVs uh, because there are so many people hedging their bets. They don't know who's going to win this race, who will get the best electric battery. You know, it's, it's, it's the holy grail at the moment. You have many old companies. So, for example, all the major automotive car companies that are as old as the motor car are involved um, and uh, some of the large chemical companies. And it's interesting to see that some of those companies have actually not succeeded. They've pulled back from the market a bit or they've left it to others a little bit because uh, the challenges are, are so great or they took the wrong bet and they've just said, you know, we're not throwing any more uh, good money after bad and we're just we're just going to leave it there. And, and some, some are failing despite all the um, investment and experience. So a big challenge for us to know what clients we should work with. But I suppose the other challenge in that whole sector is there's when people talk about um, EV batteries, um, there, there's so many different types of projects within the sector. So at one end, there's the mining for the raw materials. Now, we're not involved in that at all. Um, but then you take those raw materials and you turn them into um, the refined battery materials. And that's quite an interesting one when I spoke before about how you can transfer skills from one sector to another. Um, some of the equipment, so, uh, you know, some of those battery materials that come out at the end of that, that process, some of it's like a powder. And, you know, you're using the same equipment from the same suppliers and fundamentally a lot of the same design as you would use for a pharmaceutical facility that's producing some powder or a dairy facility that's producing infant formula. So it's quite interesting, even though they're totally and utterly different sectors, some of the same technologies and some of the same ideas uh, can apply. So we're able to to bring that thinking and, and knowledge from sector to sector. And, and once the once those raw materials are made, you then make battery cells. And that's another, another part of the, the supply chain. And then those battery cells are assembled into battery packs. And that's what will actually go into your car, your electric car that you're, that you're going to see on the road. At the other end of the scale now, which is an absolutely booming market currently, is the uh, recycling um, to get the, the raw uh, materials out because they're, they're very difficult to get to mine uh, initially. So getting those um, uh, raw materials back out and putting them back into the supply chain uh, to start the process again. So, Peter Farrelly, let's imagine you're the Elon Musk of the EV battery world and you've got $10 billion in your back pocket. What would you do? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I, I, interesting, the last point I made there about the, the battery recycling, um, it's probably, probably a focus that I, I'd focus on because, you know, whoever wins the race or whoever gets the best best bet and, and produces the best battery, at some point that will need to be recycled uh, and you'll need to take it back out. Also, personally, uh, the sustainability aspect of it, um, I like. It's a very, very important part for me and for our business. Um, so I like that part of it too. Um, so I probably would bet uh, maybe not all 10, but maybe one of my billions on on. On that sector. <laughs> Listen, let's uh, talk about PM Group uh, once again, because I mean, the group is growing phenomenally. It started in 1973, as I said, and then kind of through the 90s and the noughties, expanding into the, the States and Asia and all across Europe and stuff like that. G- give me an idea of how big the company is now today. Yeah, so we're an international uh, firm uh, headquartered in Ireland and we're delivering 
critical facilities. So the more complex, the better. And that's probably what um, what our sweet spot is. So if it's a very, very straightforward facility, and I suppose some of the facilities you've heard me talking about today are not straightforward. So the more complex, the better. Uh, you mentioned that we're, we're 49 years in business. And we have been uh, trading internationally for quite a long time. We were just just in the last few months have celebrated 25 years in Poland, uh, equally 10 years in Boston. Um, I think we must be 11 or 12 years in China now. And next year, we'll be 25 years operating in, in the UK. And in terms of scale, we're, we have about 3,600 people at the moment. And we're, our turnover is approximately 400 million. And I think a unique feature of PM Group, which is uh, we believe is u- unique among our peers, is that we're um, employee-owned. Um, so every employee in the company has an opportunity to be a shareholder in the company. It means that everybody can share in the benefits of the company um, and share in the success of the company. Um, but it also, we think, drives uh, a different mindset. Uh, it drives that owner's mindset right through the company, no matter what anyone's doing, what their position is, what age they are, what level they're at in the company. Uh, if you're a shareholder in the company, you're invested as, as an owner in the company as well. One of the problems with a company that is growing is finding new staff. Uh, and I believe you've taken on somewhere around 500 new graduates uh, through, through this and next year. Where are you getting these people from? And, and are they up to, it's a terrible thing to say, are they up to the job? But, you know, when somebody's coming in new and you've got to train them, do you know what I mean? What, what challenges do you have with that? Well, I'll answer the last bit of that first. Are they up to the job? I mean, I have to say I'm, I'm blown away by the people that I meet. First of all, they're, they're typically really, really well educated. They're typically really well motivated. They are, you know, a credit to their, to their parents, their education system, their environment, wherever they've come from. I mean, they're definitely up to the task, I would say. There's a lot of bad press about people and, you know, younger people and, you know, not wanting to work and not wanting to do much. I mean, I don't see much of that in the people we have. And maybe our selection process is very good. I hope it is. Uh, the, the graduates that I've seen are very, very, very high quality. And, and it's not just their technical ability, but what they bring to the company. They really challenge your thinking in a positive way. They look at things in a completely different way. They don't have the same experiences um, as as we have. So um, they're coming at things from a different point of view completely, which is often a very refreshing and very good point of view. And linked back to innovation, um, which I can come back to in a second, but the, the, the amount that they're bringing to our innovation drive is huge. But it's not just graduates. We also have apprentices and interns in the company and we're taking them in. Um, and our schemes are accredited by the, the main professional bodies, such as Engineers Ireland, IMECE, ICHEME, SIBSI. They might mean nothing to you, Dusty, but to some of the listeners, that those institutions will be, will be important. We probably took on over a thousand graduates in the past five years, 500 new graduates coming in now. It's a huge challenge to keep those uh, people coming in and to find all those people, but we're we're working hard uh, to do it. And I suppose the other thing that's really important to us is um, diversity. Um, and we've put a big effort into trying to balance out our uh, resources and our personnel. Uh, as you know, the engineering profession is dominated by by men. There's, they're mostly mostly men in, in the profession, and particularly traditionally. But in 2022, 40% of our graduates are female. 
which must compare very, very favorably with any of our peers or, or any other similar industries. That's a, a huge achievement and, and took a lot of work to get us to that point. You mentioned that the graduates and new people coming into the company really help with innovation and challenging your thinking and, and looking at things different ways. What way are you innovating? I suppose the most tangible way we're working on innovation at the moment internally is um, uh, I mentioned previously we invest um, approximately four million annually in innovation. But we run an, uh, an innovation in action awards scheme. That's what we call it, innovation in action. It's where we get ideas from everyone in the company. Uh, it's open to everyone. And there are a number of categories and people submit ideas and those ideas are evaluated uh, to see what innovation can drive from that. So they're in technical areas, non-technical areas where people have published articles uh, in health and safety, you know, the most disruptive ideas. And I mean disruptive in a good way, not a bad way. But it's amazing what's come through from that. And I mean, you'd expect some innovation uh, from a lot of technical people. We have a lot of very, very experienced, highly technical people in the company. But also, as we talked about, from the graduates that are just in the door and they see something and they go, why aren't you doing it this way? Or why can't we do it that way? Or here's something that I'm doing in my, you know, my personal life. Can we look at that? And some of those, uh, some of those ideas are really good. Also, we have some ideas really good from our administration teams, from our finance teams, from right across the company. So it's not just from an engineering point of view. And we've just actually recently launched a new um, Innovate app, uh, bringing it right to people's you know, pocket or fingertips. And, you know, that it's, not, that it's not just something that we do once a year. We have an award scheme and we go through this. It's that ideas are submitted, they're evaluated, and they're continually being brought on as projects uh, that we run with and that we develop in the company. On a scale of one to 10, how would you say this attitude of innovation and actually embracing that change benefits the company? Oh, like a 10. A 10, um, all right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, well, put it this way. Um, if we weren't doing it, the company would would fail. You know, you, you can't stand still. So innovation, and I think any other company would say the same, you know, you need, you need to be innovating constantly just to stand still. But it's trying to not just stand still, but to push it on to the next level as well, to try and get ahead of the curve, to try and see what are our clients looking for or what's the next thing that's coming that we can do and um, how can we work with our clients. And, and a lot of this is about working with clients. Our clients are demanding it. It's not just stuff that we want to do, our clients want us to do it as well. Why do you think engineers in particular are more open to change and innovation? The types of uh, work that we do, certainly in PM Group, the type of work we do, like there's no two projects are the same. You know, it's, 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 it's very, very different. It's always very different. So every time, even if the projects are very similar, if the challenges are, are similar, there are always new challenges and different challenges, uh, whatever they may be. Uh, at a particular time or on a particular project. So you, you sort of, you constantly have to innovate just at that project level or at that project delivery level. So I suppose it's a natural extension then uh, when it comes to taking a step back and looking at how we can do it at a business level. Let me ask you about one or two more projects that PM Group have have done just to wrap up our podcast today. And in particular, I wanted to ask you about one that's won a number of awards for the company, and that's the Janssen Project. Yeah, so this is the um, BioCork 2 uh, facility in Ringeskiddy in Cork. It's 19,000 square metres expansion. It effectively doubles the size of the existing facility. 
and it's producing immunology and oncology treatments. So very, very important treatments for people that are that have those conditions. And you mentioned about award winning. So, I mean, it won the ISP, which is the International Society of Pharmaceutical Engineers. Again, people in the industry would recognize that. It won the Facility of the Year Award in, in 2021. There's another publication that, that, you know, some boring engineers would be concerned about called the Engineering News Record, which is uh, looks at projects and and us and our competitors globally. Um, and it won the, the best global project award for 2020. And in addition, and really importantly to us, it also won a major safety award. But I suppose the other interesting aspect to that project is it had a leading sustainability aspect to it, somewhere between 25 and 30% energy savings across the buildings and processes. It used over 60% less water, 40% less electricity, and 99% of the construction waste that was generated was recycled. So a strong sustainability angle to the project too. Speaking of sustainability, let's wrap up with another project actually in Cork. And this kind of, I find this funny because in Ireland, we're talking an awful lot about wind energy when it comes to sustainability and wind farms off the coast or up on on hills and stuff like that. But you've done a particular project in Cork, which is using the power of the sun. Correct. Yeah, that's a a project for um, Eli Lilly and it's a 16-acre facility. It's the single largest solar farm in the Republic of Ireland. It produces uh, 5.6 megawatts of power. So it's a, it's a big facility. And I suppose to just put some dimensions on what that means, it's the equivalent of um, almost um, 1,000 cars driving 10 million miles and using half a million gallons of fuel or 500 million mobile phone charges so a very interesting project, very important project. Again, showing our clients drive towards sustainability and, and how we can help them with that. Peter Farrelly, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today and thank you for sharing so much on the podcast. Thanks, Dusty. It was nice being on. If you'd like to find out more about what we spoke about on the podcast today, you'll find show notes and link details in the description area of your podcast player right now. Our Amplified podcast was produced by DustPod.io for Engineers Journal. You'll find advanced episodes on the website at engineersjournal.ie or just press follow on your podcast player to get our next episode automatically. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you so much for listening. Take care.